You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, It's almost Christmas, and I have been negligent in my annual responsibilities to scold you all about not mixing Christmas and sex. Right? No profile pictures on your dirty, dirty websites or your pickup sites, or your Tinder profile, your OkCupid profile, your Recon profile, anywhere else of you naked wearing a Santa hat or you naked in front of the Christmas tree with your labia spread open. None of that. That's gross. Christmas and sex don't mix. I've delivered this message to you annually. Usually in December at some point, some point earlier to try to get ahead of it, to get ahead of the people who are trying to mix up Christmas and sex, to try to head that off at the past, try to get that to stop. But I neglected to do so this year in a timely fashion. So I'm rushing it into the podcast at the top of the show before Christmas, which is just in a couple of days. So please, please don't take those pictures in front of the Christmas tree. Don't take dirty pictures in front of the Christmas tree. It's gross. And if you've already taken those pictures and put them on your Online, dirty, dirty, sex-seeking profiles, please remove them. Take them off. Replace them with your every other month of the year slutty, dirty hole shots. Other than that, at the top of the Christmas week, Savage Lovecast, I have nothing more to add. I have really nothing more to say. There's really nothing I want to rant about. It's Christmas. Christmas isn't for ranting. It's for drinking. So I'm just going to skip most of the rant this week. We're going to get right to your calls, right to your questions, We've got guest experts, and tons of your questions, tons of your calls, starting now. Hey, Dan. I've been married for six years. I have a five and a two-year-old, and I'm in my early 30s, and my husband is in his late 30s. I'm calling because I'm having a problem with my husband saying sexual innuendos and doing what I consider inappropriate things in kids. Like if I say something like, oh, the wind is blowing like crazy outside, he'll say, oh, I wish mommy would do that to daddy and grab a dick in front of the kids. Just l- last night, for example, I was standing next to the kids and he hugged me from behind, which was fine. But then he started to rub my outer labia through my pants and the kids were looking right at us. And, um, you know, it's frankly it's just creepy. I've talked to my husband on several occasions about this and he has apologized, uh, but the behavior still continues. I want our kids to grow up in a warm, loving home and see their parents hug and kiss, but not discuss oral sex or rub each other's genitals, etc. My husband seems to think that I'm a frigid bitch and that I'm too uptight. You know, I should add that um, he has a long history of doing inappropriate, immature, you know, attention-seeking behavior, and I I think he may be a narcissist. You know, things like we we had years ago, we had a, a... gay couple that were our roommates and I swear to God he never he didn't put a shirt off the entire time they lived with us. I mean just a lot of parading up and down the house with no shirt on, you know, I mean it was just things like that. Anyway, you know, it's one thing for him to do it in front of me or to embarrass me, but it's another thing for him to make our kids uncomfortable. And I almost feel like him touching me in front of the kids is, is like sexually molesting me and the kids, which I know is maybe taking a little step too far, but it does really creep me out. 
Um, so I'm just wondering, am I overreacting? What is and isn't appropriate for children to see? You know, our two-year-old doesn't have a clue, but our five-year-old is definitely noticing things. And she hasn't said anything yet, but, um, you know, it's only a matter of time. You know, I should add, otherwise, my husband's an excellent father. He's very devoted to our kids. Um, it just really seems to be a, a maturity and a, a boundary issue. And, and then also, you know, I should guess add that we do have sex about once a week, which I think is normal for people with a couple young kids. Um, he probably have it, you know, a couple times a week if it was up to him. Um, but, you know, he does have my leave to watch as much porn as he wants and to masturbate. I'm not, you know, some jealous whack job. So, um, yeah, any advice on how to handle this uh, besides, I don't know, turning around and slapping him in the face every time he does this in front of the kids because asking him to stop has not worked. Thank you very much. So this guy that you married had this history, an established history that you'd witnessed of him doing inappropriate narcissistic things, him acting out perhaps at times in sexual ways to draw attention to himself, and you married him anyway? And you scrambled your DNA with him anyway? That was my first reaction. But you could not have possibly anticipated that the way your husband behaved in front of your gay roommates, the sort of gay cocktees that he was, the reaction that he enjoyed getting from them, was any indication that he would behave this way in front of his own children. You would really have to have a screw loose as some sort of narcissistic exhibitionist to not be able to make a distinction between your gay roommates who might enjoy a peek every once in a while of their hot straight roommate and your own children. So yeah, there's a screw loose and maybe you can tighten that screw by slapping his face. And I would encourage you no violence, not actually literally slap his face, but you need to start figuratively slapping his face. When this happens, even if it's in front of the children, you need to, Turn, put your hands on his shoulders, move him away from you and say, stop, don't touch me like that. And you need to appeal ASAP to his, you say his devoted, loving father, his devotion and love for his children because the behavior that he is modeling, particularly for the five-year-old, if that five-year-old turns around as five-year-olds typically do and engages in the same sorts of behavior or play with his or her peers – this is going to get the five-year-old in all sorts of fucking trouble. If your five-year-old goes to daycare or goes to kindergarten and starts stroking the genitals of a playmate through her pants because that's what he's seen his own father do in the home as a way of expressing playful affection for mommy, yeah, the world isn't very tolerant these days of children playing doctor, of children being curious about other children's bodies in the way we used to perhaps – tolerate it and perhaps be too tolerant of it in the past. And so what your husband is doing when he does this in front of your children is he is setting them up for a potential social, educational disaster. And even if he can't understand that he shouldn't be doing this for any other reason, if he is as loving and devoted a father as you claim that he is, that should be pierce the veil. That should be able to break through his thick fucking skull. But you're going to have to, if he's modeling for your children, stroking somebody who likes labia through her pants, you need to model for your children in the moment that that is actually not okay. And you need to defend your 
bodily integrity. At that moment, you need to set limits and boundaries. You need to model for your children the setting of those limits and boundaries. Because not only are your children seeing it is okay to do this, they're also seeing it is okay to have this done. What if someone they like, a, not a peer, an older child, an older relative, touches them in that same way and they believe that that is a, an appropriate way to express affection because that is what they have seen. Mommy and daddy doing in the house constantly, playfully. Another thing that's being modeled for them is daddy's enjoyment of your discomfort. On some level, he's enjoying what he's doing to you, how uncomfortable this is making you. That there's a sadism in here as well and an inappropriate expression of sadism, right? Not consensual, not for fun, not compartmentalized and walled off into this certain playful cops and robbers with your pants off area where sadistic impulses can be beneficial and fun and fun for everybody. But he is expressing the sadism in a way in front of his children and modeling for them that making your partner really uncomfortable, violating your partner is appropriate. And that is not actually appropriate. No, this stops right now. Yes, kissing. Yes, hugging. Yes, laying together on the couch close. Yes, all sorts of intimate contact in front of your children is absolutely appropriate. And yes, children living in our house with us might walk in on sex or something else at some point. And you need to have a conversation about what that was so they can understand it. But this, this has to stop and you have to stop it before your children are harmed, not by what they're witnessing, but by what is being modeled and what they may wind up doing as a result or what m might wind up being done to them as a result. Hi, Dan. I have two nephews who are 11 and 13, and I need your advice on what my role is as their aunt when it comes to teaching them about things like sex and consent. A couple of years ago, I sent my sister-in-law an article about how to start teaching young boys about consent. Her response was one line and said something like, oh, that would be tough. I was also surprised to learn when my nephew came to visit last year that he didn't know my wife and I are married. We've been together for 18 years, and he thought we were just friends. I don't think my brother and his wife harbor any ill intent. They're probably just unsure about how to talk to their kids about sex. I don't have kids myself, but I get it. As a po sex-positive queer woman who wants to be there for them if they need someone to talk to or ask questions of or even maybe come out to one day, what are the boundaries here? I want to help make sure they understand things like consent and safety when it comes to sex so they don't grow up to be savages, the bad kind, not your kind. But do I, in return, need to ask their parents' consent to talk to them about such things, or should I just hop on the cool auntie train and invite them along for the ride? On the one hand, I want to say getting the consent of the parents of your nephews, your, your sister and her husband, is important and would probably make you more comfortable having these conversations with your nephews. On the other hand, there are people out there, there are young children out there, adolescents out there who have terrible parents who aren't offering them any sex education or guidance at all and who are so conservative or shut down or paranoid or religiously pickled that they would never give another adult permission to share with their children some information or resources that they might need and benefit from and that their partners would benefit from and that might save their lives. And in those cases, the latter case, the on the other hand case, I think it's important for relatives, smart, sane relatives to go ahead and have those conversations even if you know that your crazy batshit fundy sister will lose her mind and you might not see your nephew for a year or two. 
you're in a better position to judge what kind of person your sister is, whether she's just uncomfortable having these conversations and would be delighted and relieved to give you that role in her kids' lives and would sign off on it, would give you her consent to have conversations with her children about about sex and consent and anything they might be interested in or curious about and embarrassed to ask their parents about or if she's the crazy fundamentalist psychopath who is setting her children up for failure and disaster by denying them the information that they need for their own safety and protection and that their future partners are, need them to have for their safety and protection. My mom did a smart thing when we were kids, when we were 11, 12, 13, 14 and they had four kids in that – you know these conversations were difficult to have with your parents, and it's difficult also to have as parents, and difficult for the kids. And so, what my parents did was they identified a few adults in our lives that we could go to, aunts, really close friends of the family that we saw only occasionally, that we could go to and ask anything. And the deal was that these, the small select group of people, would not report back to HQ, parental HQ, about the shit that we might ask them about. And what was – that was good for two reasons. First, the only seeing them occasionally, so if you had a really embarrassing question to ask, you could sort of wait until the last moments of Thanksgiving to pull Aunt Peggy aside and ask her those questions. Safe in the knowledge that you probably weren't going to see her for six months or so. And so if you were embarrassed or mortified by the question, you weren't going to have to look Aunt Peggy in the eye two days later that you would have six months to recover from the ask. And the not reporting back to parental HQ was really important too because you might – be inhibited about asking a question that you really did need to ask, that you needed information and answers about for fear that Aunt Peggy would turn around and rat you out to mom and dad. So if you can have a conversation with your sister about can you be Aunt Peggy for her kids? Can you be the person they can go to, ask questions about that you can do a little bit of a download about consent, which is really important, and safety, that she may be uncomfortable doing herself or her kids don't want to hear from her but might be open hearing from you, that would be great. If you can have that conversation, if you can offer to be Aunt Peggy and your sister can give you permission to be Aunt Peggy, terrific. But if your sister can't have those conversations even with you, if your sister would never sign off on this and you determine in your interactions with your nephews that they are being set up for failure and their future partners are being set up potentially for trauma – because your sister denying them the education and information they need, then you just go ahead and be fucking Aunt Peggy without your sister's permission. Hey, Dan, a uh, straight female in her 20s here, and I need your help. I've always considered myself really GGG. Um, I'm very turned on by doing things that turn my partner on, and my basic philosophy is that if it's not hurting me, I'll do it for them. So far, that's made things pretty easy. Um, I've been dating a new guy for the past few months, and we have awesome chemistry in and out of the bedroom. Last night, we were talking about some of our deepest, darkest fantasies, and he revealed that he sometimes watches porn where girls puke on their partner, and that it's one of his fantasies. I was kind of thrown for a loop, um, and we didn't discuss the fantasy too much, other than that obviously this isn't something he needs in order to get off, and it wouldn't be something that he'd want every single time. My first thought is that throwing up fucking hurts. It's not something that would make me feel sexy in any way doing it. Uh, second, throwing up is unhealthy, and I don't really want to damage my own body just to please him. Um, that said, I do really like him, and I am open to trying to indulge his fantasy if in other ways, if that were possible. Um, maybe giving him head while he watches his porn, 
or like throwing watered down oatmeal in his face at some point during sex. I don't really know. Um, this isn't exactly a subject I want to bring up to my friends who haven't all met him yet and would probably judge him pretty harshly. My best idea was to call you and see if you knew of any other ways that maybe we could try to indulge this fantasy um, or if you know of a healthy, less painful way to throw up, I'm all ears. Caveat. It's a great word. It means warning or proviso of specific stipulations, conditions, or limitations. And there is a caveat, a big fat fucking caveat attached to GGG that it's not as catchy, but I call a fetish too far, right? People should be good giving in game, good and bad, giving of pleasure without expectation of immediate return, and game for anything. And here's where the caveat comes in, dot, 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 within reason. And I'm sorry, but puking is an unreasonable request. And one of the things that the internet has done for us, one of the ways in which the internet has improved our sex lives and possibilities for people sexually is it has made it possible for people with really extreme or unique sexual interests to find people who share those much more easily. used to be once upon a time that if you were a necrophiliac and you were looking for someone to role play necrophilia with, you would spring that on someone, perhaps on your honeymoon as detailed in a letter to Ann Landers column in the 1960s by a woman who on her honeymoon, her new husband filled the bathtub with ice and asked her to lay down in it. And, and this newlywed wanted to know, wanted Ann Landers to advise her on what exactly she should do now that she's learned she's married accidentally a necrophiliac. That doesn't have to happen anymore because the necrophiliacs can tick the necrophilia box on their OkCupid profiles and find each other. Such is the case with your boyfriend's sexual interest in something that is over the long term going to be damaging to your health and also uncomfortable and unpleasant in the moment. Even if you only indulge him once or twice in your life, it may be extremely uncomfortable. Maybe you could seize the opportunity of the flu or food poisoning if that ever comes along in the course of your relationship and he can leap under you at those moments. But this isn't something you're going to be able to incorporate into your sex life on any sort of regular basis. It is above and beyond the call of GGG that you are willing and able perhaps to indulge him in fantasy play, to throw oatmeal in his face, to blow him while he watches this kind of porn. There are ways that he can express the sexual interest that don't involve you dissolving your molars in a torrent of acidic stomach juices for the rest of your life, all right? So what you say to him, I think, is that is interesting. I'm glad you felt comfortable enough to share that with me. I'm not going to hold it against you. It doesn't make me not love you. Every Lots of people have one or two way out there sexual interests or desires, but this isn't something we're going to be able to incorporate into our sex life. But fine, enjoy it uh, when you jack off every once in a while. You can think about it. You can watch some porn about it. When I'm not there or I can be between your legs facing away from the computer with some noise-canceling headphones on while you watch that pornography. Maybe. Maybe I can get there. But what you're not going to get is regularly throwing up all over his lap or his dick. But who knows? Maybe that will happen once or twice in the course of your relationship if you're together for decades by accident. It has been known to happen. One last way that he may – if it's all right with you – 
experienced this once or twice in his life is with the assistance of a professional sex worker. And they are out there. There are sex workers out there who this is in their repertoire, perhaps. I bet if he Googled around, he could find one or two. Might have to travel to them. I don't think it's something that most sex workers are going to go for. But there are people out there who puking isn't particularly uncomfortable. <laughs> They're good at it. They can do it at will. And maybe one or two of them have gone into sex work professionally. So he can live in hope of experiencing it in reality, perhaps, with your consent. But in actuality, with you on a regular basis, no. You are GGG, but that is a fetish too far. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk to a friend of the show. Cass King is a member of The Wet Spots, Canada's premier bisexual polyamorous musical sex comedy duo. The Wet Spots were guests on a live show, a live Savage Lovecast. Check out episode 382, our 2014 Valentine's Day special show, to hear some of The Wet Spots' greatest hits, including I Want to Fuck You in the Ass, one of my personal favorites. And The Wet Spots also wrote the intro music for our What You Got segment on the Lovecast Joining me by phone, Cass King, member of the Wet Spots, and I'm having her on today because they've got big news, and news I'm excited about because the Wet Spots are working on a musical, and I love the Wet Spots, and I love musicals. So Cass, here you are. Tell us about the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. So so Shine, a burlesque musical, is a musical about a woman named Shine Me On who owns the last scummy burlesque house on the Lower East Side and wants to keep it that way. Uh, But of course, it's uh, besieged on all sides by people who want to turn it into condos. It's hard to keep space when space becomes really expensive. And the other thing is is that that space is really, really important when you have, when your community is, is, you know, relying on it. A lot of times when you're kind of freaky, kinky, queer, you leave your family space and you have to find your own family. You have to find, a, you know, your chosen family. And for a lot of us in, in burlesque and in cabaret, our chosen family is our performing family. So that's this story. What inspired you guys to work on a musical? I, I, I love it. I'm always encouraging my friends like Rachel Lark, I, I think, should write a musical. Garfield Clonotes begged to write a musical. And I'm just so excited to hear that you guys, and you're so talented, and I love your music, you're writing a musical. And what inspired you to do that? What was the catalyst? Well, we wrote a couple of songs for a show here that was part of the Vancouver Burlesque Festival. And and uh, we just really love writing in that sort of Cole Porter style. And, and we just... We wanted to bring, you know, adult sexuality and really blatant sexual humor uh, with that kind of, um, you know, musical theater style. So when we, we we hooked into the idea of of Shine and her theater, the Aristocrat, uh, and how that that really emotionally hooked into, you know, our communities and what we were feeling and seeing, um, we knew that we had to take it further and write more songs about it. Um, yeah, so it's based on, you know, places like the Cock and the Slipper Room in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the Center for Sex and Culture and the Mission Control in the Bay Area and just how these, how vital these spaces are. Okay, we're going to listen to one of the songs. Could you want to set it up? You want to tell us about it? We're going to listen to Fuck You Blind. Okay, so this is our Come Clean song. This is our two ingenue characters, uh, Frankie and Grace, and they are at long last finally coming clean about what they want from each other. And this was, I get to brag about this, this was written by John Woods, who is our composer and 
and my partner. And uh, I just, I'm so thrilled that this new song is going to be in the new show. Remember the first time that I saw you You were standing in the rain just like a Bogart movie Ahead of your class, beautiful ass I was so shy that all I could say was Hi Well, I tried to play it cool I never showed my heart Now I'm here to say a couple of things I probably should have said from the start I wanna fuck you For the first time that you held me Your leather jacket roughing up my skin Dirty jeans, stream being James Dean American dream boat guy Don't even try I'm not looking for a lover But I must admit When I touch myself I think about your face She thinks about your cup between her Hey, I wanna fuck you That was great. I, I can't wait to see the whole show. That number is so catchy. And that's what musical comedy theater numbers need to be really catchy and really funny and so of a piece with your other stuff. What I love about your writing and the other stuff the Wet Spots have done is just how intelligent it is. There are usually arguments in your songs. They go places. And that's what uh, numbers and musicals need to do. They need to advance the plot. And you guys were already doing that in the work you're already doing. So it's just really exciting to see you branch out into the musical theater. Thank you. That means a lot coming from such a big musical theater nerd as yourself. We <laughs> no, appreciate it. Musical theater queen is what we're called, not nerds. That's queen. that's a straight Ner- thing. <laughs> right. Musical theater queen. We're called queens. nerds in my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, one quick question before we let you go. You're Canadian. How are you liking your hot new prime minister? Are you kidding? 
I, you know, let's just say I didn't have, you know, screensavers of the old one, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no Stephen Harper screensaver? No, I'm not. I don't have a kink for doughy white guys with cats. I just don't. No, we think he's great. I mean, you know, he's beautiful, and that there's more than that. He's also, you know, bringing a lot, getting rid of a lot of Harper's policies, and it seems to be working towards what more of what we consider as a real Canadian, um, you know, policy structure. Welcoming Syrian refugees personally at the airport, uh, a real, I yeah. think, contrast to the shit fit that we're having down here about Syrian refugees. We have Chris Christie saying he doesn't want toddler orphans in the country because they're too dangerous. And you have the Canadian prime minister going to the airport personally to welcome refugees and also pledging in his speech from the throne to legalize marijuana all across Canada, legalize and regulate the marijuana market, which is wonderful. We were leapfrogging you down here in the States as individual States were legalizing marijuana, Washington, Colorado, Oregon, but now Canada is going to jump past us and have it nationwide legal marijuana. It's so exciting. Yeah, and 50% of women in his cabinet, too. So, you know, feeling like, as he famously said, because it's 2015, you know, just feeling like we're Canada again. So right now you're raising money to help put Shine on. We are. We have an Indiegogo campaign that's live uh, for another 22 days. So if people want to kick some money in, I'm going to kick some money in to help make Shine happen. What's the plan? Where are you producing it? Where are you staging it? Uh, we're staging it at a venue in Vancouver, which kind of is the venue from the show. It's called the Wise Hall, and it's the place where all the freaky people do their freaky shows. <laughs> and uh, and it's a really important venue in our in our community. But the reason that we're we're um, crowdsourcing for it is because you know we've been trying to get this musical produced in some of the more legit venues, and you'd be amazed at how hard it is to get. A venue, you know, a, a musical with full frontal nudity and simulated fellatio into a theater. <laughs> and theaters wonder why they're having a hard time attracting new and younger audiences. Right, right. Well, the thing is, is that we know there's an audience for it. So it's just about clearing the hurdle of getting the funding. We're trying to sort of make the HBO of musical theater. So where can people, where can people find the Indiegogo campaign? Where is it? What's it called? If you go to igg.me slash at, the word at, and then uh, Shine Musical. So all one word, Shine Musical, or you can go to shinemusical.com and you'll follow the links there. Great. And I want, personally, once you're done, once you have this on its feed, the Wet Spots need to write a song about how badly everyone on earth wants to fuck your prime minister. We need a, a hot Justin Trudeau number that we can all hum. It, it needs to have something in there about, like, we're not objectifying him, but we're totally objectifying him. <laughs> and that's okay. When it comes to prime ministers, I think he can handle it. I would like He's to handle big it. Enough. I, I offer to handle it in his place if he can't. I will handle Justin Trudeau. I think we all will. <laughs> Cass King, she's a member of The Wet Spots, Canada's premier bisexual polyamorous musical sex comedy duo. And they are working on, and you can help support their new musical, Shine. Check them out at Indiegogo. Go to shinemusical.com. For more info, thanks so much for jumping on the phone, Cass. Always great to talk with you. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan and Team Tech Savvy. I'm calling because I have sort of a silly question for you. One of my friends has been with her partner for about nine years, um, and they've had some rocky times through which I supported her, but they are now married, um, and things seem to be going well. Um, I feel like I should preface this situation with the fact that he is sort of just a ridiculously 
hot dude. He's just shamelessly great, great looking dude. And recently has joined a gay softball league on the weekend. He is not gay, has never, you know, you know, doesn't, is not bi or anything like that. Um, but he joined it with, through one of his friends. And so participates on this gay softball league. And I was hanging out with her and I suggested, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we went and watched, wouldn't it be great to go watch gay softball league on the weekends? That sounds like a great way to spend my Saturday. Um, and she said that she is not allowed slash discouraged or not invited to come. And so I thought to myself, I wonder if Dan is going to think the same thing that I thought, which is that that's because this dude is definitely either fooling around with these dudes in some capacity, or at least really just basking in the glow of being a really, really hot straight guy on a gay softball league. Um, I wouldn't tell her any of this regardless. Like it's not my business. I um, don't have any proof. I don't want to get proof. I think that it would be pretty heartbreaking for her. But so I am curious to see if your radar sort of went off in the same way that mine did um, with regards to a husband not wanting his wife to see him or watch him play on his gay softball league. So in 2008, the Gay Softball World Series took place here in Seattle. And it ended up with drama, more drama perhaps than typically the Gay Softball World Series features. I'm sure it's a very dramatic event in lots of ways because three guys were disqualified from playing, were pulled from a team, yanked, dragged off the field because they were perceived by the other players to be straight. And there was a lawsuit and eventually there was a settlement where those three guys who were discriminated against based on their sexual orientation got some money to make them feel better about it. So I'm wondering when you talk about this hot guy who's joined a gay softball team down there, wherever you guys are, I'm my first go-to isn't, oh, is he secretly gay? Is that why you're bi? Is he fucking around with everybody else on the team during the games? And that's why he doesn't want his wife in the stands? Or is he passing himself off as hot and gay? And the wife hanging out, watching the game, will interfere with his disguise of hot gayness so he can play gay softball. Only he knows the answer to that question. If he is letting everybody on the gay softball team think he's hot and gay and into softball, only he knows what's going on, whether he's there for all the hot gay softball dick or he's there to play softball and wants to play gay softball particularly for some reason and is passing himself off as straight. That seems in some way likelier to me than he's closeted because it would be a clumsy way to be closeted to tell your wife you've joined the gay softball league. If he's interested in hiding his homosexuality or his bisexuality from the wife, he probably wouldn't mention that he joined a gay softball league. And there are easier ways for insanely hot straight guys who are actually closeted by or closeted gay guys to get dick that don't involve softball, that don't involve practices and out of town games. Your friend's husband could just get on Grinder or Craigslist or Scruff or Recon or whatever else and find all and put up a torso shot and find all the dick he wanted without having to go to practice, without having to catch a ball. He could catch all the D without having to catch a ball ever. And that seems likelier to me, the reason he doesn't want her there, because they think he's gay, 
not because he actually is gay. Hi, Dan. Here's my question. Can you or your experts explain the trend toward hyper-modesty in men's locker rooms in gyms these days? I don't get it. When I started working out in the 80s, people were normal. There Maybe there'd be like one out of ten guys who would be uh, modest about getting naked and change under a towel. And now I feel like it's eight out of ten guys who are changing under a towel. And it defies age. It's young guys, old guys. It's guys with great bodies. It's guys with average bodies. It's it's blind uh, for race. And it's not like I'm some huge cock watcher and I'm like ogling and the guys are just hiding from me because I'm trying to see their cock. I'm, I'm, I'm not even looking. I'm just so aware of how many guys are so modest now. So do you have any insight into this? Mark Joseph Stern is a writer for Slate who covers the Supreme Court, the law, LGBT issues, and dick in locker rooms. Mark, thanks for jumping on the phone and helping me out this one. You recently wrote a piece called titled, If You Are Not Comfortable Being Naked Around Other People, You Are Not an Adult. And interestingly enough, this piece, which came out uh, about a week ago, is illustrated with a picture of Angela Merkel, Times Person of the Year, in a locker room surrounded by hot guys. So Yes, I that, figured that would be, uh, if nothing else, that would be the clickbait that drew readers <laughs> into my screed. But that was prescient. She was sort of your person of the year before time got to her. That's absolutely right. Angela Merkel surrounded by uh, Jim Short clad, uh, partly nude men. So you were riffing on an article in the New York Times about this trend where guys aren't getting naked in locker rooms in front of each other the way that they used to. And your argument is – and the caller is obviously interested in that subject too. Maybe he saw your article. Maybe he saw the New York Times article. Your argument is if you're not comfortable being naked in front of other people in the locker room, you are not an adult. So will you please now tell me to my face that or my ears that I am not an adult because I am not comfortable getting naked in a locker room? Are you kidding me? Okay, well, Dan, you're not an adult. It's that <laughs> simple. Look, look, body consciousness is a totally normal and natural thing as a child. When we're kids, when we're teenagers, we are all very aware of and sort of freaked out by our bodies. We don't like being naked around other people. Our bodies are changing. They're maturing. We're getting hair in weird places. Totally understandable. We get fat. We get thin, whatever. The body does a lot of crazy stuff. But, you know, when you're an adult... As you've aged out of that period, I think that body consciousness and and including nudity consciousness is something that you sort of have to work past if you want to be a mature person. It's like developing a taste for wine or something like that. You know, it might not be really easy to obtain, but the fact that there are still actual grown men, apparently including Dan Savage, who are shuffling around in towels in the locker room, desperately clinging to their... uh, their, making an assumption here that I would take a shower in a locker room. I don't shower <laughs> at the gym. I go to the gym in my oh, gym clothes on. and then I change back into my street clothes and I go home. I'm not going to shower at the gym, so I don't need a towel. You are what's wrong with America, let me tell you. <laughs> not Donald Trump, not Ben Carson, me. Okay, so Absolutely. So this guy wasn't asking us about whether this is a phenomenon. Uh, it, it is, and I am contributing to it. He's asking why. And why do you think it is? Why do you think that these days so many fewer men are comfortable walking around with their sacks dragging between their legs? 
in the gym? Well, I, I have a couple of theories. One is just the greater awareness of, and to some extent, tolerance of gay people. I think back in the 50s and 60s, when our dads were growing up, it was you know not discussed that gay people and same-sex attraction even existed. Mm. Uh, and so now a lot of men, some of them may be enlightened, some of them may be hideously you know, regressive and bigoted, but there are just a lot of dudes who are aware that there may be someone who could conceivably be attracted to them and their bodies in the locker room and that makes them cling to their towels and let's be honest here the locker rooms of urban gyms in america are at least 50 percent gay so the odds that there might be somebody in the locker room is attracted to you might be checking you out are really high they are high i mean the, the irony is you can't get gay boys into a gym in high school but you can't get us out of the gym in adulthood <laughs> That's exactly right. But my question is, what is the problem with somebody else taking a glance at your dick or your beautiful body while you're walking through the locker room? What harm could that possibly cause? This theoretical, hypothetical harm that these men are so afraid of just seems utterly benign to me, if it's even extant. I think these guys are acting like wimps. They just need to get over themselves, accept the fact that maybe someone's going to check out their dick and move on. Straight men have been been looking at each other's dicks for size comparisons for eons. This is very, very similar, barely any different. Dudes need to get over themselves. I will never get over myself. I don't think I will ever be able to do this. I, I've never been <laughs> able to get disrobed in a locker room. And maybe it's just anxiety from when I was a gay closeted kid. And I went to a crazy Catholic preparatory seminary in freshman year. And the seniors at this school took their swim class right before the freshman and the seniors swam naked. The Catholic Church, ladies and gentlemen, it's been here for two millennia. The seniors swam naked. So as a closeted, pubeless 13-year-old boy, I was in a locker room surrounded by hot high school senior boys covered in hair. And I'm just maybe I'm just so traumatized by that experience that I still can't get undressed. Yes, but you need to work through that trauma. You'll be a better person for it. I will be. A, really, that's how low the bar is set on better person. Just waggle your dick around in a locker room unselfconsciously and you are a better person. That's your argument? Absolutely. <laughs> Self-actualization involves waggling your dick around in a locker room. You're I gay, think it's, right? it's, I, of course, I'm gay. So, so you're just like wanting to create a world where you get to see more dick in locker rooms. Is that your agenda? Look, if that is a secondary effect of my <laughs> argument, then I certainly won't complain about it. But it is not the primary driver behind me pushing my gospel for more locker room nudity. I want men to be comfortable with themselves, men and women. This is not really a gender-specific argument. I want everybody to be comfortable with themselves, to be happy with their bodies and their genitals and whatever, and not freak out so much that they can't even take a shower at the gym, <clears throat> Dan. <laughs> like me. You know, this may – I don't want to pivot to a larger and more consequential issue socially and politically. But, you know, if people were more comfortable, as you would like them to be, with perhaps being slyly checked out in a locker room or a bathroom, that would sort of do away with the whole, oh, my God, there's a trans person in the bathroom issue because that anxiety is all tied toward somebody might be getting a secret thrill. There's somebody yeah. in the ba bathroom who may be here to take a look. And shouldn't be here because that's that whole like bullshit argument that there are that trans women aren't women. They're actually men and they dress as women because they'd like to go to a bathroom or a locker room and check the ladies out. But if we just all had big co-ed locker rooms where everybody could take a discreet peek if that's what they wanted to do and people were respectful and not pervy, then this whole issue would go away in theory if everybody were or if everyone could become the person that you would like me to become. But that's unlikely to happen. 
I think you're absolutely right, though. I think that a lot of the anxiety about trans people in locker rooms is sort of a displaced anxiety about gay people in locker rooms that conservatives know is just too politically incorrect to talk about. You know, conservatives are not thrilled that there could be same-sex attracted people in a single-sex locker room, right? But they know they can't go out and say it. That's, that's Prop 8 era at best. Uh, in 2015, you can't get away with that, but you can still do it for trans people. So they're stirring up they're fomenting all of this crazy locker room anxiety about people getting checked out and looked at and leered at in the locker room. And if everybody just accepted my argument, okay, not to toot my own horn, but I think we could all work together to defeat those assholes and just be comfortable with everybody, no matter what set of genitals they have. You know what I think we should always point out when they make these anti-trans arguments? Because what they're saying, I think we should point out that the, the argument they're fundamentally making about trans women in restrooms is that there's, you know, is that there's no such thing as a trans woman. They're saying trans women are men who are in there to check out the women. So they're saying that not that trans women are terrible, but that straight men are terrible. That's a great point. That's very, very true. I mean, that's just one of the, one of the many illogical fallacies that drives all of the anti-trans arguments. Mark Joseph Stern, you should be reading him at Slate, where he covers the Supreme Court, the law, LGBTQ issues, and dick. Thanks for jumping on the phone today, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Hi, I'm a um, 30-year-old lesbian. I'm just in the coming out process, and I have something that's really worrying me. Um, I don't know if it's too taboo to talk about, but um, I was sexually abused when I was little, and I am almost wondering if, did that make me a lesbian? And I asked a trusted lesbian, I don't know very many lesbians, um, so I asked one that I was talking to, and she said, oh, don't worry, I was too. So that sort of reinforced the feeling that maybe all lesbians were. And then, so is it, like, I guess what I'm asking is, did the abuse make me gay, or was I born this way? And... I guess the other question is, does it even really matter um, as long as I like chicks? So the American Psychiatric Association and all other mainstream credible mental health and social welfare organizations say, they state unanimously that there is no relationship between childhood sexual abuse and adult homosexuality. What you have here at work for you is really the intersection, if I can use that word, of stereotypes about what causes homosexuality with confirmation bias. You were molested as a child. You have heard because it's out there in the ether because anti-queer religious organizations promote this fallacy. You have heard repeatedly throughout your life that children are seduced into homosexuality and that children who are abused by members of the same sex will grow up to be gay, that this takes a heterosexual child and makes them gay. And it's just not – True, but you experience childhood sexual abuse and you are gay and that rattles around in your brain. Like, is that true? And then you meet someone else who is gay who is also abused and you're like, aha, it's true. But what you have to remember is that lots of children, unfortunately, are abused in our culture. And you as now an open lesbian out there in lesbian land, the people that you meet and have these conversations with are going to be lesbians. So the people that you meet who were abused as children are probably going to be lesbians. And there are plenty of people out there who were abused as children who did not grow up to be gay or lesbian, but you may not be talking to them about these issues. There is no relationship. That said, often people who are pedophiles, people who abuse children, will target children that they perceive to be gay or lesbian 
for abuse, will pick them actively as their victims because they know that a little gay child, a little child who's gender nonconforming or is proto-gay or lesbian is less likely to run to mom and dad or an authority figure and open up about what happened to them because they fear drawing attention to their own sexuality or their own gender expression which may already be causing them grief and trouble at home and they may feel guilty or complicit in their abuse. This is something that you – know, that self-loathing that a lot of gay children and lesbian children and bi children experience, pedophiles and child abusers will weaponize that, will use that to force that child, will use that to silence the child that they choose to abuse. So paradoxically, although – Childhood sexual abuse does not cause homosexuality. Homosexual children are likelier to be abused. And so adult homosexuals, gays and lesbians, are likelier to have experienced childhood sexual abuse because they were targeted by pedophiles and child abusers, not because it induced their gay or lesbian sexual orientations in adulthood. Meet more people. Almost all of these myths – about what causes homosexuality are easily disproved when you meet and talk to more queer people. They say that having a distant relationship with your father induces homosexuality. I had as a child much better relationship with my father now, but as a child, pretty distant relationship with my father and I grew up to be gay. Did that relationship make me gay or were we distant because I was gay and it fucked up our relationship? It made it hard for us to talk to each other. That's what happened. My husband, Terry, here's a – Scientific sample of just two people in the same house. Terry was really close to his dad and he didn't turn out to be straight. So this thing that was case closed, causative, caused my homosexuality, some people on the religious right would and have argued about me, somehow it didn't work with Terry. And somehow my straight siblings and Terry's straight sibling, despite having the same parents, wound up being straight. So if it's Parental dynamics that cause homosexuality, how come it doesn't cause it in all the children in the family? Just the gay one in the family turns out to be the gay one. And the same is true with this, with childhood sexual abuse, not to make light of it. The same is true with this stereotype, that yes, you will meet people who this is true of, that they are gay adults or lesbian adults and they were abused as children. And if you don't think about it carefully, you may then conclude that the haters and the bigots who promoted these stereotypes and myths are right because, hey, look, I have the evidence now. I was abused and I'm a lesbian. I met another lesbian. She was abused. She's a lesbian. So that's confirmation bias at work, not empirical data, not studies, not facts. Get out there. Meet more lesbians. You will meet just as many if not more, hopefully many, many more who were not abused as who were abused. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old lesbian in Colorado, and I have a legal question that I'm hoping you or maybe one of your guest experts can shed some light on. Um, I recently started a new job, which fortunately provides me with health insurance benefits. And while I was going through my enrollment paperwork, I was trying to figure out if my partner could be covered under my plan. And what I discovered was that other than, you know, children and dependents, it explicitly stated that the only people that could get coverage other than the employee were, quote, legally married spouses of the opposite sex. 
So now that same-sex marriage is legal nationwide, can they still make that stipulation? Is this a result of the Hobby Lobby ruling or some religious freedom restoration bullshit like in Indiana? Or is this just plain still legal? I mean, this isn't a big deal for me right now since my partner and I aren't married anyway and she still has a little bit of time left to be on her parents' insurance. I mean, honestly, it's just that You know, while working for this company has been great so far in every other way, it just makes me kind of nervous about what kind of future I can even have here if they already have discrimination explicitly built right into their company policies. So can they still do this? Why can they still do this? It just doesn't seem like big national companies should be able to get away with this no-gaze-allowed bullshit anymore. Oh, caller. We didn't just get an expert for you, Lesbo. We got the biggest of big gay guns. Joining us by phone, Roberta Kaplan is a partner at Paul Weiss. She was named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in the United States and litigator of the year by the American lawyer. And Kaplan represented Edith Windsor in United States v. Windsor, the landmark civil rights case that overturned the odious Defense of Marriage Act and paved the way for the recognition of same-sex marriages in all 50 states, including Colorado. Kaplan is the author of the new book, Then Comes Marriage, Windsor and the Defeat of Doma, which is terrific. I recommend it. Reads like a thriller, even though we all know how it ends. Get that book. Okay, Robbie, can they still do this in Colorado in 2015? Yeah, the answer is probably most likely no. Um, Unless the company is doing basically self-insurers for health insurance, which I would be very, very surprised by. Very few companies do that uh, today. Uh, The rule today is that you have to give health insurance to all married spouses of whatever gender and marriages between same-sex couples completely count. So if that's the company's policy and they're using an insurance company to do it, an outside insurance company, then that policy is probably most likely illegal uh, under the Constitution. And illegal in Colorado, where since 2008, their public accommodations law has banned discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in employment, housing, public accommodation, education, and credit, and everything else. Uh, so I'm curious as to whether this is just old language that's rattling around out there in this company's policy that they've not yet zapped or revised in the wake of Windsor and Obergefell and same-sex marriage coming to all 50 states. And maybe this Maybe the caller needs to just march into HR or the boss's office and say, so about this, about this language in my contract, what up? Yeah, as per usual, Dan, like I completely agree with you. I, I, my guess, without knowing more, is that it is kind of old language uh, that's in the policy that no one ever bothered to fix. Uh, they should fix it, obviously, because you shouldn't have employees that are confused about it. Um, but unless it's some, you know, privately owned, privately insured right-wing company, which it doesn't sound like, you know, uh, the Colorado equivalent of Hobby Lobby, um, then I think it is probably just an oversight, um, and she should go and march into HR, and they should make sure that the, the language is fixed so people aren't confused going forward. And what if it's a Catholic university? What if it's a Catholic uh, hospital or some private Christian high school? Yeah, well, then, you know, it gets tricky. Well, a, a private Catholic company cannot hire someone on this basis. So you could be, sadly enough, uh, if you work, well, let's use the easiest example. If you work for the Catholic church or for a Catholic school, uh, you know, they probably have the right to not hire you because you're gay. 
But if you're there and they're keeping you on and you are gay and you are married, then the same rules apply. They have to treat you like every other married employee and they can't have an exception for married employees who happen to be gay as opposed to married employees who are not. So what would your advice as a litigator and one of the top 100 litigators in the country be if she marches in there and says, you know, I'm a lesbian, uh, I have a girlfriend, we're not married yet, this doesn't apply to us yet, but it could in the future. If she marches in there and says that and they're like, ah, no, fuck you, we're never going to give health insurance to a lesbian partner of one of our – or spouse of one of our employees, fuck you. What's her course of action then? Sue? I think assuming she wants to keep working at this job and it sounds like she does and I think she needs to find a lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> uh, probably a lawyer in Colorado would be best. Uh, but I, I would assume without knowing the full details that she would have a very, very strong case. Um, and that there may be a case even on behalf of all the gay employees of this particular company. But I suspect, I really go back to you and I suspect, particularly if they know she's a lesbian and they hired her anyway, that maybe this is language they added to their HR handbooks in 1993 when Hawaii was looking like it might uh, go first with marriage equality in all sorts of states and businesses and private entities that now support marriage equality panicked and you know banned it or created policies that disallowed it. And a lot of that language just sort of is still in the books and needs to be yanked out. And Exactly. I, that's, my, that's what I suspect. It's probably old kind of obsolete grandfather language. Um, I, she could be doing them a big favor by pointing it out to them, to be honest, uh, because you don't want to have that kind of confusion in, in your employee benefits. And I'm hoping that when and when she does point it out to them, they'll fix it and her problem will be solved. Robbie Kaplan is the author of the new book, Then Comes Marriage, United States v. Windsor and the Defeat of Doma. Pick it up, read it. Thank you so much, Robbie, for jumping on the phone with us today. And on behalf of all legally married same-sex couples in the United States, I just want to personally say Thank you. Anytime. And any more details, I'm happy to answer more questions. It's a pleasure. Hi, Dan. I'm a married man, large East Coast city. Um, in my late 40s, married to my guess, high school sweetheart, 25 years. We decided after long discussion to open up our marriage and start seeing other people. Um, suffice to say, as you've said before, one person is usually more successful than the other. In this case, she's been significantly more successful than I. I panicked. I freaked. I went all, you know, can't can't handle this, can't handle this. And she got mad and it got very physical. And she hit me and she's never done that before and she regrets it. I, I'm having a difficult time coping with it. I'm having a, a very difficult time of letting go of all this programming that's been taught to us by society and religion and and what have you about possession and owning people i guess anything you could give me advice wise would be would be great to help me cope and let her go and and have this thing that i should be happy that she's experiencing so opening up a relationship when it's you know it's a double-edged sword it can it can strengthen a relationship where you know openness is good for both people and it works for both people, it can really solidify a bond, but it can dissolve a relationship where it's not working for both people, right? Where right. There's resentment or anger. And right now it doesn't sound like it's working for you, even if it's working for her. Also not working for you is physical violence. I don't know. I don't and know. has she apologized to you for getting physical, whatever form that took? 
she's more shocked and I mean, she's apologetic, but she hasn't really said sorry in the the sense I'm sorry, but she's more shocked that she actually got to that point. Mm -hmm. And the issue that, that, that angered you and that, that the conversation that led up to physical violence was because the conversation that led up to that was that, um, I had, because I'm in the, the funk that I'm in, the depression was that, um, I was dismissing her love. And she says, what, what do I have to do to get through to you to make you understand it? And that was kind of where her anger was coming from, her so, frustration. So to make her, to make you understand that she loved you, she smacked you? Kind of, sort of, yeah, because she didn't have any other way to, t- to get through to me at, at that point. Were you spinning out of control? Were you frothing? Was, you know, no, I was just sitting there taking it. <laughs> okay. It's not okay to hit, and she needs to apologize for that. And whatever else is going on, openness or non-openness, whether you're going to close things up for a while, you two need to see a couples counselor, not just a faggot with a sex advice podcast. <laughs> there are serious issues and fissures here in your relationship that just five minutes on the phone with me are not going to paper over or fix. Mm-hmm. So right. if you have depression, uh, is it medically diagnosed depression? Are you in treatment for depression? Uh, I'm I'm just starting – to go down that path. We haven't diagnosed me with anything yet. I just have some stuff to help me go to sleep at night. Okay. That's important to, to, yes. to get in treatment. It might be the wrong time. If you're depressed and it's a medically diagnosed depression, depression and you're getting into treatment, this might be the wrong time to add to the mix of your marriage openness, particularly right. if it's only, she's the only one enjoying it or benefiting from it. At the moment. Well, I, I can't because I'm not in a place where I can bring anything to the table with somebody else. And I'm aware of that. You know, um, until I get to a better place for me, that, that that's not a, a potential for me. Is she willing to close things down for right now and prioritize you and the, the marriage before reopening things? You know, we spoke to a, um, a life coach and uh, she recommended, you know, like labor. Labor is not all you know, pushing at some time, you have to take a break and pull back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly the words that she used, but that was kind of sort of the metaphor she used. And um, she agreed to do that, but at the same time, she would like to see these steps progress. And I'm like, well, wait a second, we can't progress to that until we figure out what's wrong with me and us first. Right. So, But I think what your wife is saying there and what she's trying to communicate to you is that a closed relationship in forever, like remaining closed for the rest of your relationship, that's not a price of admission she's willing to pay. It sounds like what your wife is saying that for your marriage to continue, for her to continue to to, to be with you, openness is something that you need to be actively and evidentially moving towards Right. for her to stay. And you need to decide whether being in an open relationship and, you know, being in a marriage where that's open is something that you want. And so you guys need to have a conversation right. about whether you're still right for each other. Yeah. You know, because if what she wants is going to make you depressed and angry and your depression and anger is going to make her violent, then maybe you guys shouldn't be together. And that has to be on the table too. But there are people right. who say to their partners, I want, you know, I can't stay in this relationship unless it's open. And their partners say, okay, we'll get there, but I'm not ready right now. And it's a, it's a you know, their partners are trying to stall them for three decades until death. Mm-hmm. Right. They're like, okay, yeah, at some point in the, in, you know, in the future, we'll get to openness, but for right now we need to deal with X, Y, and Z. And then there's always more that has to be dealt with. And so right. your wife, and I'm not, you know, I'm 
being the, a bit of a devil's advocate here for someone who I'm kind of uncomfortable advocating for because of the violence. But what your wife may be saying is, if what you mean by not now, I'm not ready now, if what you really mean is not ever, I won't be ready ever. And, you know, you're telling me maybe or later when what you mean in your heart is no, then we may mm-hmm. not I, – I, I might want out of this marriage. And that's a whole other conversation right. that you guys need to have. Yeah. About what you both want and what would make you both happy. Now, I've heard from lots of guys who, you know, were in long-term committed relationships, straight guys, and they open them up and their wives or girlfriends are just getting tons of dick. Or they have mm-hmm. no problem finding – other partners and they have a lot of problems finding other partners because women aren't men. Right. Because pussy's harder to get than dick. And there are lots of reasons for that. That's a whole other conversation that we've had extensively (laughs) on this show. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so I I remember those conversations. Okay. So I think it's sometimes in the best interest of the woman who wants openness, but wants the marriage too to assist her husband in finding other partners because Mm -hmm that may make it easier for the husband to continue to be in a good place about the openness. You know, when girlfriends or wives who in suddenly open relationships are like, all right, I got mine. You go get yours. Oh, you can get, get, you can't get any. Well, too bad for you. They're kind of, you know, that's not the right attitude to take. If what you want is the relationship to survive, because if your husband or boyfriend becomes resentful, and angry because he's sitting home alone and you're running around jumping on dick that ain't his. That's not a recipe for the long-term success or health of that relationship. So, you know, women out there, I'm always saying to women out there who want openness, you know, you might want to get the openness that you want while giving some aid and comfort and assistance to your husband so he can get a little openness too. Otherwise the relationship's going to collapse. Your husband's going to insist on shutting it all down. Mm-hmm. So I would say all that to your wife if she was listening. Maybe she will be listening at some point. But what do you, but, but what do you want? Yes. Do you want to be in an open uh, relationship, or are you merely agreeing this to to, to openness to? No, I, I I do. I mean, I, I did want to do this. I, I believe wholeheartedly that that this is the direction I'd like to go. It's just I'd not had much success, and then with her, you know, fantastic success, and and it isn't even about so much the sex per se. It's more about the, the newness and new relationship energy and stuff like that that she's looking for more than the sex itself. Because our sex life is not, yeah, it's not, our sex life is nothing to complain about that she's, she's complained about. Mm-hmm. So it's more about that new relationship energy that she's searching for. Mm-hmm. You know, then something that can provide for her. Right. And that's an intoxicating because feeling. We've been people, together too long. That's mm-hmm. why a lot of people end up having infidelities that are just, that are, that are non sexual. The romantic infidelities, emotional infidelities, right. because people want that new relationship energy and it is intoxicating. And you can't get that in a, after 25 years with your spouse no. and, and no. people desire yeah. that. That's why people seek it out. Even if it risks blowing up their whole lives, you can get it too. It's just going to, you're going to have to work harder to find it and it'll take longer. And presumably I got over, I got over here, but your wife can participate in helping you find that. And she should. Not because she owes it to you, but because she owes that to herself. If openness is what she wants for herself, making sure that openness is working for you too is how she gets it for herself as well. 
that makes total sense. So <laughs> now I just have to apply it. <laughs> yeah, she, you and she have to apply it. And one right. of the ways that I know a lot of couples, straight couples who've gone into openness have found that uh, for both, found situations that work for both, is a rule that the wife only dates men who are also married, who are also in mm-hmm. honest, open relationships. And sometimes you wind up with couples dating other couples where it's sort of mm-hmm. an ongoing, intimate you know, NRE, new relationship, energy, besotted swap that continues for a while, that, that, that becomes a, a, a relationship. Mm-hmm. So you guys have a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. Get treated for depression, stay in counseling, find a therapist that works for you guys. I'm always recommending asect.org, A-A-S-E-C-T.org. It's a good place to find sex positive, open relationship positive couples, counselors, and therapists. Get treated for depression and if she hits you ever again, that has to be a deal breaker. Right. Doesn't matter how angry people get in the moment. Doesn't matter how hard, difficult the time you're having getting through to someone in the moment. You don't get to, to punch them. Mm-hmm. And then to rationalize that away by saying, I just couldn't get through to you any other way. Mm. If the shoe was on the other foot. I'd be in jail. You'd be in jail. <laughs> There's a double standard in the culture when it comes to yeah. to, to, to this issue. Yeah. So tell your wife I said hi and never to hit you again. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Okay, good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 30s married girl, and I'm in an open relationship where my husband prefers that I, I don't ask, don't tell policy. And the main question I'm running to is into is how do I go about having sex with someone else Without feeling like I have to lie to my husband about where I am to get out of the house or not come home. Any help you can offer is really helpful. Thanks, Dan. One of the reasons that couples who are open sometimes opt for a DADT arrangement isn't just that, you know, the primary reason is they don't want to be tormented by the mental images or they just don't want to know. They don't care if it's happening, but they don't want to know in the moment or really ever. They want to pretend or, you know, be able to suspend their disbelief and function as if they're in – emotionally function as if they're in a sexually monogamous relationship. So there's that. But another reason a lot of people opt for DADT is it really logistically puts a lid on it that the opportunities for you or him to fuck other people are going to be constrained by the fact that it has to happen at times and in places under circumstances where he's not going to find out about it. So you can't be away overnight for some mysterious reason. Because then he would know about it. So you can't make plans to see your boyfriend or your piece on the side at a time when otherwise you would be with him because then he would know about it. And this constraint that for you is a problem, you need to have a conversation with your husband or boyfriend because that may be what he likes about DADT. By design, it limits the numbers of times you're going to fuck other people because logistically – the occasions when you can do it without violating the DAT are going to be rare. So you're asking me how you can fuck around, how you can see other guys fuck around with your partner's consent without having to lie. And the answer and built into the DNA of the DADT agreement is at those times when that's possible. And that may not be possible every time that you want it to be possible because It's not possible if you have to lie. It's not possible if you have to make something up that he's going to see through or he's likely to correctly interpret as bullshit. 
if you have a DADT agreement with somebody that you live with and you're married to who has a reasonable expectation that you are going to sleep with him every night, you don't get to spend the night elsewhere unless you're away for a business trip and you tell your piece on the side to meet you in Tucson or wherever the fuck you're going on your business trip and then you can spend the night together. But spending the night together in the city where you live isn't possible because it would functionally result in you violating your DADT agreement with the person who should be your first emotional and sexual priority, and that is your partner with whom you have that agreement. Hi, Dan. Here's my story. I'm a 32-year-old straight female. I got married when I was 21. I was married almost nine years before he left. It was a fairly amicable separation. We never had a volatile or contentious marriage. We didn't have kids or house. We had our divorce finalized in a very short period of time. After the divorce was final, I tried for a while to continue to keep in contact with him via text message. Talking about TV shows we bought, watched, uh, nothing difficult or even personal. But I quit trying and haven't heard from him since then. But I can't seem to drop the idea of reaching out to him. Everyone in my life now thinks this is stupid. There are sort of two strains of thought here. One is simply that I miss his friendship. He was basically my only person for most of our marriage. She was my best friend and home husband for almost a decade, and I miss him and his family who have also not contacted me. The second is that I would like to know, now that time has passed, what I did wrong. What were my worst traits? How can I be a better partner going forward? The words he said to me when he was leaving are forever seared onto my brain, but I wonder with hindsight if he had any useful comments. Please tell me, Dan, am I just searching for that closure that no one ever actually gets and must create for themselves? Should I try to reach out to this person who is so much of my life? I don't know where he is actually living right now, but I think he's still living with his parents several states away. So even renewed communication would never be a daily thing or even a face-to-face thing. I would love your thoughts on this, Dan. I'm trying not to read too much into the fact that you don't talk about why you got divorced, why he left you. You don't tell us what exactly it was he said on his way out the door and you didn't include a phone number. So I couldn't call you back and ask you those follow-up questions, those obvious follow-up questions. It could be that you behaved very badly. It could be that you really shat the fucking bed. Maybe you cheated on him in a scalding way and maybe being in contact with you at all makes him feel terrible. And rips open every wound and he just can't emotionally deal with having any contact with you. And that is his right. If he can't deal with you and he doesn't want to be in touch with you, he doesn't have to be in touch with you and he doesn't have to deal with you. And that's a right each of us enjoys, whatever kind of interpersonal relationship we're talking about. No one can compel us to be in touch or contact with them if we find it painful to be in contact or in touch with them, however unfair it may feel to that person. Closure is something you do for yourself. Closure is not a gift someone else gives you. So close it. Tell yourself, I'll never know why I can't be in touch with him or why he doesn't want to be in touch with me. I wonder, however, if perhaps you actually do kind of know. And those details I mentioned at the top of my response might have something to do with why he doesn't want to be in touch with you. But he doesn't want to be in touch with you. That's the closure. Slam. It's over. Closed. Ended. He doesn't want to be in touch with you. He knows that you want to be in touch with him. You reached out to him for years without him responding. He knows you want to be in touch with him. You've reached out. He hasn't responded. He knows that if he should ever reach out to you, you will respond. So balls in his fucking court. And maybe it'll be five years, 10 years before he's ready to 
say anything to you before he can remember the good times and wants to recall them in conversation with you. In the meantime, stop obsessing about this. Stop obsessing about something you cannot control. Hi. Uh, to the lady in episode, I think, 447, who is fucking the chauvinist, I get where you're coming from. I'm a strong, independent feminist with a huge misogyny fetish. That being said, I highly recommend finding a fellow feminist kinkster. You can take your fetish so much further and have way more fun with your kinks with the right kind of person. Getting pseudo-raped by a respectful, consent-oriented dirty bastard is so much fun and is so much safer than expressing that interest with an actual chauvinist abuser. Also, um, getting hogtied and face-fucked might be awesome on its own, but having someone who makes you cocoa afterwards and discusses feminism with you while you cuddle is pretty great, too. Hi, Dan. This is a comment for the woman who was having great sex with the chauvinist guy and being a little conflicted about it. I think if, if she needs a way to break free of this guy and sort of get away from the great sex, she might think every time they're together of how she's proving every MRA asshole and pickup artist right about their bullshit theories. And I think the, uh, the thrill of that might wear off real, real quick. <laughs> Hello, Dan Savage, longtime fan. Anyway, I wanted to call in regards to last week's dog masturbating. I am a professional dog groomer and uh, just wanted to comment and say chances are that dog isn't masturbating but needs its anal glands expressed. Yes, dogs have anal glands. So it's probably pretty uncomfortable and she's trying to scoot it into the carpet. Take her to the vet or to your groomer and have that taken care of. And if it's not that, it's fleas. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Roberta Kaplan on Twitter at KaplanRobbie. Follow Mark Joseph Stern on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. And follow The Wet Spots on Twitter at The Wet Spots. Speaking of Twitter... Larry the Llama tweets, My mom bought me the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast for Christmas. Merry fucking Christmas indeed. Love you, Dan. Come to NYC soon. Please, I'm coming to NYC soon, I hope. And uh, tell your mom, Larry the Llama, that I said thank you for gifting the Savage Lovecast. And you can, other listeners, gift the Savage Lovecast yourself by going to www.savagelovecast.com where you will find the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast subscription edition. Twice as long, twice as many calls, questions, comments, guests, and no ads. SavageLoveCast.com The Savage Lovecast is produced every week. Magnum and Micro Editions by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.